You're listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode in the series of The Good Conversation uh, podcast. Uh, I'm John Gillibrand. Welcome to everybody, and a great welcome to our guest today, Aled Edwards, the Chief Executive of the Welsh Ecumenical Organisation, Katine. Uh, I'll get Aled to introduce himself in a few moments and to talk more about his work and other things. But first of all, let's remember what the house style is here at The Good Conversation. There's a commitment at The Good Conversation that religious leaders should be prepared both to ask and to answer the toughest questions. And so I have to turn to my guest, first of all, and say to you, Aled, I know we've known each other for a very long time, but are you up for that? Are you ready for that? I think it's going to be much easier than to take a vow of silence, John, as you well know. I don't think either of us would find a vow of silence particularly easy. No. Uh, we know, <laughs> both know the importance of silence, but neither of us would find it easy. No. So it's great to welcome you, uh, Aled. As I say, Aled, you're the chief executive of Katine. Can you briefly, we'll come back to your work uh, later on in the interview, but can you briefly describe what that is for somebody who may not have heard of Katine uh, or really have very little connection with the churches that you represent? Well, it's a national ecumenical instrument, which means basically that most of the large denominations and churches um, have aligned themselves together to work together according to the Swanick declarations from many years ago. Um, very mindful of what's called the Lung Dictum, that Christians should do all things together unless there's a good point or principle or integrity involved that prevents them. But we, we serve um, churches from the Orthodox Catholic tradition all the way through to the, um, uh, to, to, to the Pentecostal, Evangelical, Charismatic movement, and my guess is you'd get Anglicanism somewhere in the middle there. That's what we, we ascribe to be. And currently, we're very involved with um, conversations in the public square around closure of buildings to help churches to understand the regulations. Yeah, we're very involved with, um, with racial justice issues, um, with asylum seekers currently in the Penale camp in uh, Pembrokeshire. And we're very involved as well with trying to persuade people to be vaccinated uh, in terms of the public good. Um, that's been a very great change for us because uh, normally we've been involved with Christian witness, enabling Christians to come together and trying to serve the kingdom here in Wales. Thank you. Thank you, Aled. Uh, this next question, can I ask that you just have a few word answer, even a one word answer? How much do you okay. love your job? Oh, enormously. And how long have you been doing it? Well, this current post since 2006, uh, but I've been working for Katian since 1999. Um, that's when I became the Church's National Assembly Liaison Officer. And uh, for those years, for about seven years, I worked uh, closely with uh, the National Assembly and being the liaison officer, liaising with them, alongside my, my, my predecessor, 
uh, a lovely Christian man, Githy Nebron Williams, uh, who's now sadly no longer with us. Yes, we both we both attended his funeral. He's uh, uh, as those of, uh, who know the Welsh scene are concerned, and the uh, scene of the denominations in Wales, he's hugely uh, missed. Uh, it has to be said. Um, yeah. Now let's go back a little before we go forward. And I'm going to ask you a very Welsh question, I suspect. Where are you from? Well, I'm very much a transfer boy um, in Bangor Diocese, and I was brought up um, in St. Martin's Church in, uh, in transfer uh, But my family sent me to a variety of uh, denominations, and I had the privilege of being part of um, uh, the Anibanwyr and the Presbyterians, uh, as well as retaining my Anglican roots. But it was in transfer And you still have family in transfer don't you? Yes, my uh, yes, I, I do. My brother and uh, a whole string of cousins uh, are up in that part of the world and in, in Trasbanid in particular. How important would you say that? I, I think you've begun to allude to it there, but how important would you say that upbringing Trasbanid was to your future thinking and to the person that you are today? Oh, enormously, I guess. Um, you know, it was a very uh, special upbringing. Um, I lost my father when I was five years old. So in a sense, I was adopted by the whole village. Uh, so that story about uh, bringing somebody up by a whole village was very much my experience. I, I know Charles Bunny, that I can understand how you might be the result of being brought up by the whole village. Uh, village yes. uh, me and my twin sister. Uh, so uh, that was very special. But uh, I know it sounds a little bit stereotypish, but uh, at that time in Trasfynydd, it was a very cultural place. Uh, we had the Gymdithas, the society, that would meet uh, regularly and we'd have dramas, we'd have Nosolawen, um, you know, the, those concerts. Um, and faith was important either for us as Anglicans in the parish church or in the numerous chapels that were open then. Um, and I had a sense then from seeing um, various clergy work together and coming together um, that there was a great deal of sense in Christians working together. And I'm pleased to say now that, that there's a joint pastorate there. All the Welsh Nonconformist chapels, as far as I'm aware, have joined uh, under one pastor, and that's alongside the Anglican Church. Um, perhaps one day the Anglicans will join in as well. That would be what that would be wonderful. Yeah. I have to declare an interest here that I used to be, as you know, Aled, the uh, uh, rector of uh, Blainer Festiniog and Llan Festiniog. And uh, I have wonderful memories of going to preach harvest in that little daughter church on the uh, main road in uh, Trasvanid uh, parish. Yes. So, uh, yes. It's a, Tinant, that was it. That's yes. A wonder, yes. A wonderful, a wonderful part of the uh, part of the world. Now that kind of brings me on to uh, another question. As you know, this podcast today is an unusual experience for both of us because normally when we're talking to each other, we talk to each other in the Welsh language. And Trasvani to this day is a strongly Welsh-speaking uh, community. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you fit in the fact that you are a Welsh speaker with your faith and how important is it to you that you speak the Welsh language? Um, 
I, I can hear people saying, as I ask you that question, why do you bother with Welsh when it's a dying language? Uh, that's not a question I'd ask myself, but no. just putting that one on the table for you. Well, it, it's not a dying language. It, it's a growing language in so many ways. Um, and it has many manifestations now. You can have that deep rural upbringing uh, that I had and that you enjoy, John. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit strange for us, as you can imagine. Um, I, I would never be so bold as to pray in English to God unless it was in public. Um, <laughs> all my prayers um, are in Welsh. I would never speak to my family in English unless it was in, uh, in public, and there's a good reason to do so. Um, yes, it's just part of who I am. It's like walking, it's like talking, it's like hearing. Um, it is as essential as that. There is much more to a language than uh, just being a means to communications. It's, it's very much a part of who you are. Uh, and I'm finding now, probably we will move on to this, John, in terms of uh, my national brief in Wales, where I'm bringing diverse communities from all over Wales together. Um, it's now a growing, complex dynamic. I'm very privileged to be the chair of the school governors in Scotland, Norton, where I now live uh, near Pontypridd in Kilvanid. Um, and again, it's part of the regular dynamic, I guess because of my work and I guess because of the nature of the staff team, I spend more time speaking in Welsh than I would speaking in English. Um, that just happens to be the nature of the post. Um, so it's, um, you know, the, the, these questions are a bit odd for me, John. It's, uh, I guess we've been talking Welsh since the age of Boudicca. I think it's time for somebody to switch the lights on on that little conversation. Absolutely. And you know that I agree with you when I say <laughs> And you also know that uh, I'm here to put the challenging questions. And I think yes. you responded to that challenge excellently, <laughs> if I may say so. Uh, but my experience, as you know, is somewhat uh, different. And uh, we have known each other, not quite since the age of Boudicca, but somewhere <laughs> in between there. And you remember me when I think when I couldn't speak very much Welsh. And as I say, it's now our natural uh, medium of communication. Now, for me, that opened my eyes to the importance of everything in the world that is cross-cultural, coming from Manchester and becoming, as I am, a fluent uh, Welsh speaker. I always reflect that there are two fluent Welsh speakers who were born in Manchester, myself and Lloyd George. Yes. And uh, I try to behave myself better than Lloyd George on all kinds <laughs> Absolutely, of levels. Absolutely, John. <laughs> with all due respect to his memory. Yes. Uh, but can, can we reflect on that now? How important in our modern world is that cross-cultural work? And how does the scene here in Wales fit into that? Well, the very word Welsh, as opposed to Cymru, uh, conveys the sense of being foreign and different. Uh, the Welsh word Cymru, Cymraeth, uh, Cymru, they all convey uh, linguistically a sense of belonging. And one of those things that we've striven uh, in post-evolution Wales to do is to make sure that all of us are equal and equally valued and can contribute uh, to whatever Welshness evolves out of our shared experience. So it's not so much, John, in a way, 
um, that we delight in you being a, a Welsh speaker. I, I don't view you as an Englishman, um, mm -hmm. but I know very much that's what you are. Um, but it's part of, um, of that dynamic of coming together to create a modern, diverse nation. And as you know, John, I deal a great deal in my time with migrant populations. And I come across people who can sometimes speak eight or nine languages. It's, it's perhaps one of the curses of a monolingual culture that we live in, is that people can't celebrate that linguistic diversity and gain from that a whole rich diversity of views, opinions, values, and experiences um, that have come to Wales. Uh, and I delight uh, very much in that sense that in me, Wales is one. Uh, as one of our famous poets conveyed to us, um, uh, and I think wherever we are, wherever we come from, whatever language we speak, whatever life choices we make, we must have a Wales where everybody is welcome. And you've been very much part of a message, so John, part of that dynamic of teaching us how wonderful friends from England can be in terms of contributing to our life and our culture. Um, and many of us have married um, uh, English women, uh, only one I hasten to add, uh, but I know lots of Christian friends who've, um, who've married into that international experience of England and beyond, which I think adds to the diversity of what we are. Um, very much an echo, if I may say so, John, theologically, of what uh, happened at the Pentecost of the creation of the church. As somebody I know quite well uh, once described it, the first first um, recorded instance in history of simultaneous translation, which yes. uh, I, th I thought was a, a very good line. <laughs> Each from their mother tongue, John. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just one last thing uh, before we go on to other areas as far as the Welsh language is concerned. As you know, there are people who we could describe and with accuracy as being anti-Welsh. People who don't get the shared experience that you and I have, because you and I, as soon as we say the word Trafsvanith, we know where we are and we know all that we're referring to. How do we tackle that issue? You've talked about building an inclusive society in Wales. Um, how do we tackle that issue of people who simply don't get it, uh, not perhaps through any fault of their own, but because they just do not share that experience? I've discovered, John, it's much easier to pull elastic than push it. Um, you befriend people, you welcome people, and you share company with people. And I suspect for most people who are new to the reality of the Welsh language, um, that uh, is enough. Uh, if you're included and embraced, that is, um, that is enough for them. Uh, sometimes people will struggle to learn a different language, and I can understand that because I'm not a linguist, although I'm uh, fairly fluent bilingually. Um, but I think for the hardcore opposition, that I think has to be treated rather differently, particularly when it's attached to right-wing politics, um, to a certain sense of nativism within the British experience that is intolerant of difference. Uh, my suspicion is that some people will come to our doors politically, waving flags um, and shouting foreigner. Uh, and I suspect to some of those individuals, um, I would be a foreigner because I don't customarily um, speak English as my first language. 
and you know the flag thing is something that is now a curse in our world. I think that's the case uh, recently with Donald Trump in America, America first, Britain first. I think we in Wales have to be careful that we don't have Wales first. Um, you know, I don't think that I'd want to be part of any um, sort of nation building um, surrounded by that. But I think when people become aggressively nationalistic to the point where they wish to eradicate somebody else's culture, then I think as Christians, we have to say, well, that isn't, that isn't good enough. Especially when those communities, dare I say, will sometimes attach themselves to a faith and apply a certain sense of intolerant fundamentalism to otherness. And that is extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous in any setting. And it begins with that sense of othering, uh, to say to the likes of me um, that you're different and shouldn't be uh, really tolerated beyond a certain point. And I think first language world speakers can do that to others as well. And I think we as Christians have to challenge those views um, and those approaches. So I think on the soft end, be friendly, be nice, welcome. But I think if somebody is being aggressive and intolerant to the point of being sinful, I think what we need to do then is to challenge those approaches. You mentioned Donald Trump there. and I've been uh, gripped over the last few days watching his uh, impeachment trial. Very, very disturbing uh, viewing in many ways, as you know. Uh, but if anyone ever said to me, uh, make Wales great again, I think I'd <laughs> respond, as others have done, it always was great. Was great. <laughs> and in my case, it was waiting to be discovered yes. all the way from Manchester. So yeah. that really brings me to my next um, thing to consider and you've already mentioned this uh, from earlier on in your career, the uh, direct work, the direct liaison work that you uh, did with the Welsh Assembly, uh, or as we would now say, the Senedd, <laughs> the Senedd down in the bay there. Uh, again, a place which, you know, is fairly familiar to me as well for all kinds of reasons. Um, and as I say, uh, Although I agree with so much you say, Aled, I mustn't allow you to escape from the basic premise of these podcasts, which is to ask the tough questions. Why on earth are Christians getting involved in politics? Isn't it spiritual matters you should be concentrating on? That's a very peculiar view of God, John. You know that I'm only asking the questions here. I'm speaking on behalf of others. It may not be my view. Indeed, no. let's be honest, it isn't my view. But could you still answer the question, please, Aled? Well, I'll try my best, John. How long have I got? The, um, <laughs> the, the, the relationship between the churches and what's now evolved to the Senate, or more particularly for us, the, the Welsh Government, um, you know, I deal far more with the Welsh Government than I do with the Parliament as it is now. Uh, that's because we're involved with politics and with policy. So right from the beginning, you know, we brought uh, faith communities together after 9-11 and that created the Interfaith Council for Wales, which is a place where uh, very divergent um, communities can come together to speak, uh, to talk and to discuss. And that dynamic has led of late, for example, to a sense of social partnership around the delivery of vaccinations that has astounded many. Uh, so that we can work together as Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, other faith communities, 
to make sure that perhaps reluctant faith community adherents um, will be vaccinated. I can think of the early days uh, from my Welsh background, um, it was possibly in 2001, John, uh, with the foot and mouth crisis. We were very engaged with the Welsh government and the ARC Addington Fund in providing financial support for farmers under very, very difficult circumstances um, through the whole um, foot and mouth crisis. As you know, John, we've been very busy as well uh, establishing Wales as a nation of sanctuary um, with a care of asylum seekers and refugees. And that's been very much part of the dynamic that has shaped what we've done through the chaplaincy in Penali, where the Home Office have placed um, asylum seekers while they're being processed. Um, all these things, I think, are Jesus-pleasing. And uh, if it's Jesus pleasing, I think it's okay with God the Father. Um, so I think any notion that you might have that you can contain God uh, into those little buildings that we have, um, I think uh, I think it's a very poor theology, John. What for many years has been known as God in a box. God yes. in a box. <laughs> but uh, attempting to box God in, as we both know, is uh, yes. is extre an extremely tricky operation. Yes. Um, You've had direct experience of American politics, haven't you? Um, a little before the, uh, I don't know yes. when your most recent trip was, but I know that you were out there in the days of the Obama campaign and uh, saw it close hand the uh, Democrat campaign. So again, it leads us to that question of the relationship between faith and politics. And looking at the American scene, isn't there a concern that that relationship can become quite uh, pernicious? And I'm thinking of uh, those who've been uh, support from uh, white Christian churches, predominantly, who've been supporting uh, Donald Trump in these recent years. Is there a danger, you've celebrated the relationship between faith and politics here in Wales, is there a danger that the relationship between faith and politics can become corrupted? Um, absolutely, as all abuses of power can be. And I think particularly when you identify the Christian faith so much with your own nativist culture, that you then believe that the um, the historical Jesus who walked around in, uh, in, in the land of Israel uh, some 2,000 years ago looked like us, uh, talked like us, and shared our values. And you and I know that the Lord, the giver of life, um, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, won't allow us to bottle God in that way, uh, because if we do that, it is God-denying um, I'm always reminded of uh, Bishop Clayton Mears' wisdom when he was asked um, as a theologian lecturer at St. Michael's College, um, what is the first task of a theologian? And his response was to say that the first task of the theologian is constantly to remind the students of theology that God will always be greater than an interpretation of him. And I think uh, our friends in America, or indeed any culture that wishes to align God closely with nativism, uh, has to be mindful of that. I did ask the night that Obama was campaigning, uh, won the election. I was down in a place called Oakland in San Francisco, near San Francisco. And I, 
And I did think in the euphoria that night as a whole town um, erupted in, in one massive party, a very noisy one in 2008 in November. Um, Do ministers of religion go to rowdy, massive parties? Yeah, it was a rowdy, massive party. And many of those individuals would go to black-led churches um, in, in Oakland and in, in San Francisco. But I, I did wonder that night, John, um, where would all the angry white people go? We found out. Uh, we found out, didn't we? And, and I reflect on one experience that night, which I found enormously healing in terms of faith. Um, there was a young black mother with her teenage daughter. And she said to her daughter that night in a very sacred moment, um, we are both Americans and we are both black. Tonight, those two things are one. Mm. And it was quite a privilege to be that night with the company of such individuals with their cultural background, aware that the likes of John Lewis uh, were being, you know, euphoric in the background uh, on the Obama victory. And bearing in mind that probably, you know, just a few years before, both Obama and them as individuals would be somebody else's property. Mm. And I think that sort of sense of moving on, however difficult it's been in the recent uh, American experience. And, but I think we do have to remember that uh, mainstream Christianity in America has been very, very vocal in the defense of what is right. Uh, I well recall the response of the Bishop of Washington where Donald Trump decided to walk down and hold the Bible outside it to proclaim his allegiance to a certain cultural experience, that it was the bishop of the diocese who was the, amongst the first to criticize him for doing it, especially since he had to use tear gas to get to that point. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, just a final one on the faith and politics uh, thing. The Senate in Wales, both you and I remember the very, very beginning, the very, very beginning, and we remember uh, what turned out to be a very good morning in Wales. Um, a very last minute surprise in lots of ways, <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the most pleasant surprises that Welsh people, uh, certain of us have ever had. Again, I'm asking the tough question here. What justifies the existence of the Senate down in Cardiff Bay? Well, it's, it's, a, it's an odd question to, to ask, isn't it? I think any nation has a right to its own democracy and its own right to self-determination. But I think if you're asking the nuts and bolts question about money and practicality, um, I think there's an irony that we're having this interview on the very day that the Welsh government has delivered the most effective vaccination programme anywhere in the UK and probably anywhere in the world. I think that the way in which we've done certain things from a Christian perspective, such as the Welsh FED doctors training scheme that I was involved with from uh, 2002, um, just in terms of finances, um, you know, you get a doctor being produced as a refugee uh, that can work in any part of the NHS in the UK. Um, we've gained about £200,000 from them. And I could go on and on and on, John, about all those policies um, that have been life-saving and redeeming. 
I think the big point for me is, and, and this is the point that's frequently forgotten, uh, there's a certain value base in Welsh politics that looks after the vulnerable children, that looks after uh, the environment in a certain way. We've got some of the recycling um, outcomes um, that, that are really impressive in the UK um, and beyond. But there was one little piece of um, policy um, a few weeks ago that I thought was quite crucial. The Welsh government decided that it would not give rate relief to large businesses because it felt that that was wrong. And I can remember a um, webinar with Mark Drakeford, and I have no party uh, political allegiances here, but I can remember being mightily impressed with him. It, it felt like one of those Jed Bartlett moments uh, from mm -hmm. West Wing, John. I know that you, you, you will appeal to it. A businessman um, in a webinar asked Mark Drakeford um, why he wasn't being supported to the same extent that large businesses were being supported in England. And I'll never forget the courage of Mark Drakeford to say to him, I have to accept responsibility for that policy. That policy is mine because we worked out that you had a better chance of surviving the COVID crisis than smaller businesses did. And we took the decision to support the smaller businesses. And if you're an avid West Wing fan, you remember that was a very similar incident in the early career of Jeff Bart Bartlett as he became president, where he had to be very honest with the people of Des Moines. And I think devolution has been honest with the people of Cardiff and the people of Wales. Um, but I could go on and on and on with all the policies that have been worthwhile. And the key element, the last point I think I probably had to say, John, is that we've discovered during COVID that co-production and social partnership is infinitely cheaper, infinitely better, and more effective than outsourcing things to private companies who have done certain things in England, like track and trace, not so well. I'm recalling a, a famous scene from West Wing here, and uh, I can imagine somebody writing on a napkin, let Drakeford be Drakeford. Drakeford, yes. <laughs> and I'll leave those listening to this podcast to make make what out what they think of that. Yeah. Everybody has different views, as you know, but, uh, yeah. but that importance, whatever the political party, of courageous decision-making and courageous decision-making as close to the front line as possible. And uh, Yeah, and John, can, can I just say that um, you know, I have no party allegiances, so I'm not a member. And one of the difficult journeys for me personally um, was being alongside a, a very young, a very able Plaid Cymru uh, Assembly member, uh, Stefan Lewis. Um, I nurtured him in his faith and in his politics and in his development. Um, we were both very candid with each other. The relationship wasn't transactional. And when he died far, far too young, mm -hmm. I had a sense that he represented the best of a different political party. I miss him dearly. And I think probably we just have to mark the fact that the process has delivered exceptional people of different parties and of different traditions. Um, and we miss them. We miss mm -hmm. them. Thank you. Thank you, Alec. I'm just going to turn towards the end of this now to your work in Katine. Uh, I've uh, steered a little away from that because I wanted us to reflect 
in this podcast as in others in the series on the outward facing nature of the Christian church and of theology. Uh, but let's ask some tough questions now. Uh, again, um, let me ask you this question. You've talked about Trasvanith and you talked about the uh, growing ecumenical partnership in that corner of God's uh, earth. And uh, I do believe that God, when he made the world, started with Trasvanith just, <laughs> just to show how really good things could be. Yeah. Um, but thinking about communities up and down Wales, and within about, if you travel about five miles within Wales, within an urban context or from village to village, you'll pass many churches and chapels, some of which now are sadly closed. Um, does it make any sense, does it make any sense in one community these days for there to be so many different places of Christian worship? Isn't that a dreadful waste of resources? Well, the short answer is no, and the long answer is not at all. Yes. It doesn't make any sense. It, it really doesn't. Uh, and what we're finding in the community where I live now in, in southeast Wales, um, particularly around the Cardiff Conurbation, people will go to the places of worship, not because they're an Ibanuir or, or, or Catholic or Methodist or whatever. They will go because they feel welcomed in those places. Um, some churches, like the Episcopal churches, will have a strong sense of allegiance. But really, people are already deciding with their feet, John. And they will swap churches, they will swap denominations, and they will rest wherever their souls find benefit. And I think it doesn't really make a sense to duplicate resources uh, quite heavily. Um, I well remember being asked uh, right earlier on when the Senate building had been opened, um, what would be your argument about you know wasting so much money in a building? And I asked, and this is coming from church people, mm. and Absolutely. they were quite, <laughs> and they were and they were quite challenged over that view because if you looked at all the resources that we spend um, on buildings, and the, the, there's a greater challenge in a sense than economics here as well. Um, our world, the world that God gave us to be stewards of is in deep, urgent crisis. And seeing churches um, waste resources being very unfriendly to the environment, I think we are moving now to a, a stage where we have to ask very difficult questions of each other. And one of the things that we've now asked in the wake of COVID, of course, is how many Zoom ch church worship, uh, many of them are far more numerous and well attended than when we drive those cars all over the place into Wales to go into those square buildings. Um, people have learned a new way of worshiping. Uh, it's easier, it's safer. It's not where we will go all the time in the future but it does give us a window of opportunity to think about, um, for church, the new normal, having a new reasonable. Where we will go. You, me you mentioned a few moments ago the idea that people will go where there's a welcome. Uh, are all churches in Wales, churches and chapels, I mean, places of Christian worship there, are they all equally welcoming? Are there some places where outsiders don't get a welcome? 
Well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to point fingers, John. Uh, no, but I'm, I, I'm not I'm encouraging sure, you to. <laughs> I'm sure it's true, John, that, that, that some congregations are more uh, welcoming than others. And they will cross the denominational boundaries. It depends on the personalities and the uh, people involved. I'm very much a fan of Walter Wink and his principalities and powers. And I think uh, these places of worship through vicars, ministers, church wardens, deacons, elders can uh, very rapidly become powers and some are more redeeming than others. That would, I think, be fair comment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, you've talked about your commitment to diversity and equality. Do the mainstream Christian denominations in Wales overall, I'm not simply talking about leaderships, I'm talking about overall culture, if you like, uh, do the mainstream Christian denominations in Wales share that profound commitment to equality? Um, well, it depends which characteristics you're talking of. Um, you know, we, we've got different views and, and I serve all of them equally and lovingly, I hope. So I have to you respect do. those. Div- you do. Yeah. I know you Thank do. You. Well, I, I, I try and respect those differences. And it's constantly a challenge for us in the modern world. So, for example, now we have having conversations with the Welsh Government around relationships and sexuality education. And they've decided, the Welsh Government has decided uh, to withdraw the right to withdraw. Yes, indeed. And there's a very interesting conversation there around equalities legislation, that when the state says that everybody must do this, you may fall foul of indirect discrimination. Uh, especially if you're applying a rule to everyone that says you must attend this process and be part of this endeavour, although we know that your ethnicity perhaps or your faith background um, may have a disproportionate effect on you. So what I'm getting at in a clumsy sort of way, John, is that, yes, churches have got a long way to go with equalities, but so has the world. And one of the things that the world now has to relearn is that people will decide quite legitimately to shape their lives by a sense of being obedient to God. And I think that modern world society has a way to journey along that path before our characteristic is fully um, recognized in that dynamic. But the, the issue of race is a difficult one. COVID has revealed to us that we've had enormous injustices, and they are mainly socioeconomic. Uh, Sometimes they are driven by racism. And we're having this interview, this podcast, around the time when we are celebrating Racial Justice Sunday. And I think, John, when I first came across Racial Justice Sunday uh, a quarter of a century ago, 25 years ago, I think it would have been a fair aspiration that we wouldn't be holding them anymore. But my suspicion is that we need them more than ever. In the first in this series of podcasts, Adrian Masters asked me some tough questions. And I hope that I've picked up some professional hints from Adrian over (laughs) at ITV Wales uh, about how to do that, but to do it as a good conversation 
um, as part of the good conversation, uh, maintaining our courtesy and our very long-standing friendship uh, throughout. So thank you ever so much, Aled, for your very clear and transparent answers. I have now, faced I'm... worst beast, John. Sorry? I have faced much worse beasts. I shall have to try again in that case. <laughs> But I'm going to do to you something that um, something that Adrian uh, did to me. Some quick fire questions. Okay. Pop, pop music or classical? Oh, pop. What's your favourite piece of music in the pop genre? Oh, it would be something from the music uh, from the musicals. It would be, it would be from the stage. Um, you know, something from chess or something like that. That that, that would be my. Um, my sort of music. I'm now going to get tough. Come on, Alan, be specific. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of it. Um, memories? Memories. I love that one myself. Yes. I love that one myself. That could be a theme for a subsequent series of podcasts, indeed. It could, indeed. Big question for a Welsh person. Rugby or football? Football. I'm a, an avid member of the Red Wall. Um, my my very definition of heaven, John, was seeing Chris Gunter cross the ball to Sam Vogues when we beat Belgium 3-1. I was there. I was there. Are you, and, are you telling me that you're a Manchester United fan? Yes, I. Uh, th that is just one of the sins that I would openly confess to. But as a Manchester United fan, I'm always very humble, as you well know, John. And as you know, I'm from Manchester as well, <laughs> and I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Sweets or chocolate? Oh, chocolate. Yeah, a bounty bar anytime. You've been specific as I was about to urge you to be. Wine, beer or spirits or nothing? Diet Coke. Really? <laughs> it's my major sin, Diet Coke. Diet Coke. Uh, it, it's, I prefer it to alcohol. Um, wine gives me a headache. It's just a, it's just a, a, a personal thing. No, I've, I've never been uh, fond of alcohol. Uh, my mother was a teetotal, and I think my grandfather used to drink a lot. Uh, so I've gone in the middle of the ground and have a Diet Coke. Now, we've already uh, covered your favourite piece of music. Have you been to a live concert or live performance in recent years? Any memorable well, nights? John, I, you, you may know that for about three years, I was one of the directors in the Millennium Stadium now the Principality Stadium. And they, they, they forced you to watch a lot of rugby. And they forced you to go to concert. And I, yes, I've watched R.E.M. Uh, my favourite was The Boss, Bruce Springsteen. Um, were, were you there? Yes. Were you there? Yes. I was uh, there too. Well, the, there you go. The Boss was, was at his best. Uh, but I have to secretly tell you uh, that I was dragged along to a Beyoncé concert. Oh and goodness. the one that I really struggled with, for obvious reasons, is a One Direction concert. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so just quickly to uh, wrap up, what, what's your favourite book, apart from the Bible and Shakespeare? What's my favourite book? Oh, it would be an academic work on politics. It's Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny. Uh, I, I almost sadly think that I should read it every day. I'll have, I'll have in that case, to ask you a follow-up question, which is, what's your favourite novel? I don't read novels. I read books to acquire information. It's just the way that my slightly um, 
uh, within the spectrum brain works. Uh, I, I, I can remember reading Kidnapped as a boy and thinking I must rather read a history book. But without realising, of course, that that taught me a great deal of history. And final question in this part, which is, uh, what's your favourite movie? Yeah, it would, uh, it would be Waterloo. And do you remember a certain Thomas Picton um, having his demise? Uh, he was a slave owner, a matter of considerable contention in modern Wales. Uh, but he is portrayed in that film, uh, just a, a reminder of somebody from West Wales going global. Thank you ever so much, Aled. Uh, just one quick question to finish. And if you'd be so kind, a quick answer. Just a little snapshot. 20 years time, what will Wales be like? I think we will have moved on uh, into a greater degree of self-determination, but it will be based on a far more diverse and sophisticated and more complicated sense of who we are. Uh, but I do feel that if we've not reached a point of total independence, we will have had a sense of uh, ownership of our own affairs that would give us at least a federal structure. Thank you very much indeed, Aled, for uh, being prepared to take part in this good conversation, in the good conversation. It really has been a good conversation uh, with you. Uh, thank you ever so much uh, for this time with us. And indeed, if I may say so, for all that you have done and are doing. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Thank you, dear John. And thank you very much indeed to all those who've been listening uh, to this episode of The Good Conversation Podcast. Thank you for listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. This podcast was produced by Phil John with music by Dan Greensmith.